Good morning. So good to see all of you. Thanks for taking the time to fill that out. That will really help us uh, in our ministry. I'm uh, honored to have here a good friend of mine, Jim Olson. Say hi to everyone, Jim. Are you there? That's the pastor in St. Paul, a good friend of mine, doing some great work. Uh, it's really good to have you here. He's on sabbatical. Lucky. Crying out loud. We're uh, going through our series, Compassion by Command, studying the issue of poverty and God's heart for the poor and our response to the poor and things of that sort. And it's uh, really been a challenging and invigorating, I think, for many enlightening uh, series. I felt led, the whole team that helps kind of design these sermons felt led to go in a little bit different direction. Still dealing with poverty, but a different kind of poverty. Uh, The Bible has a number of different concepts of poverty. Most of them are about economic poverty, but not all of them. And so if we're going to have a message or a series on on having compassion towards the poor, we need to have a full-orbed understanding of the poor. And it's not just about economic poverty. I want to title this message, A Touch of Reality. And the reason for the bunny will become obvious here pretty soon. The Bible says it's not good for humans to be alone. The kind of poverty I want to talk about this morning has to do with that. It's the poverty of isolation, the poverty of feeling invisible, the poverty of feeling unloved. Mother Teresa said this, being unwanted, unloved, uncared for, forgotten by everybody, I think that is a much greater hunger, a much greater poverty than the person who has nothing to eat. Think about that. Which brings us to the bunny. I'm sure... Many of us have seen uh, or read the book, seen the movie, or some kind of version of The Velveteen Rabbit, one of my favorite stories of all time. I'm a, I'm a sucker for sentimental kid stories. The Velveteen Rabbit, about a rabbit who learns how to become real. And, and I want to show a little clip, uh, a, a narrated version of this story. And the, this, this clip starts at the point where the Velveteen Rabbit was given as a Christmas present, but then quickly tossed away and was abandoned and kind of stuck in the closet with some other toys that were no longer wanted. And in this closet, uh, the Velveteen Rabbit comes in contact with a very old and worn down toy horse. But the toy horse, well, it's not really a toy because the toy horse has learned the secret of being real. And the Velveteen Rabbit wants to learn about that. So let's pick up the story at that point. What is real? asked the rabbit one day. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Mm, Sometimes, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily, or who have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. 
things don't matter at all. Because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. I suppose you are real. And then he wished he had not said it, for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real. That was a great many years ago. But once you are real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. <sighs> the rabbit sighed. He thought it would be a long time before this magic called real happened to him. He longed to become real, to know what it felt like. And yet, the idea of growing shabby and losing his eyes and whiskers was rather sad. He wished that he could become it without these uncomfortable things happening to him. There's no, there's no easy ticket to becoming real. Your hair has to get loved off. Maybe that explains some things. I don't know. Seems to me that this is a really profound kid's story. I, I think we're all in the process of becoming real. When we learn how to be loved and learn how to love, you become real. An ultimate reality is, is growing into God's kingdom, the reign of God. We become real. It's about learning how to be loved and learning how to love. I, I thought about this story uh, last week when I was doing a funeral. And I don't, uh, as a matter of policy, do funerals. I, I just, time doesn't allow it. But this was one that I really felt God called me specifically to do because it was for a very unique person. Um, I and my small group, we uh, once a month go to an apartment complex and carry out a little ministry at this apartment complex. It's, a, it's an apartment complex uh, for folks who used to be homeless. Most of these folks have other kinds of physical and mental challenges as well, as homeless people often do. And we, we go to this uh, apartment complex, and uh, we just uh, sing some songs, play some music, have discussions, uh, do a little Bible study. Uh, this is an example of it. Usually there's anywhere from two to five or six people there. One time we had a revival, we had eight. Uh, but, but it's a very small thing, uh, and, and it feels sacred for that reason. This is sacred space for me. It, it just feels just raw kingdom, and I love it. That's me on the bass guitar, and you may be thinking, gosh, I didn't know you knew how to play, play a bass guitar, and, they, and, and the reality is I don't. Um, but see, in this, in this crowd, that doesn't matter. They wanted me to play, play bass guitar, so I got up and I played bass guitar. Um, and you know, they don't have the same kind of standard of music we have here. Uh, we, we make a joyful noise into the Lord, and we just have a good time. And it, there's something sacred about it. That's Claude on the keyboards there. He's, he goes to the church here, and he's the one who invited us to come and be a part of this. It's just a, a very special time. One of the ladies who attends the most regularly, her name is Lynn. This is a, a picture of Lynn. She's always there, never misses it, looks forward to it, says it's a highlight of her month. Um, she helps out with the sound sometimes. Lynn's story is uh, all too typical for folks who have been homeless. Um, she was abused by her father and then at a, some point uh, kind of let people know about that and the response was to kick her out of the house. And so she was on the streets at a very young age. Lynn was a very simple lady um, 
and um, just didn't have uh, ways of getting out of that cycle. Got married at one point, but to a person who was uh, an abuser and alcoholic and eventually abandoned her. And so she got caught in a cycle of poverty on the streets. At some point, somehow a social worker, I guess, let her know about these apartments and she qualified for them. And so she got into this apartment. It says a lot about Lynn that when she got into this apartment, these apartments are efficiency apartments. They're very, very small. Uh, they, they have a small bedroom, a small bathroom, uh, a little bit of a living space where you can maybe put a, a chair or two, and then a little kitchenette. But Lynn had befriended somebody. Uh, they worked, they, her, her phrase was, we worked the same corner. They would panhandle on the same corner, her in her wheelchair. And um, so she invited him to come and stay at the apartment. And the management knowing the situation of these folks, looked the other way and let that happen for nine years. Uh, Lynn was uh, rough around the edges. She had a lot of opinions. Uh, she would share them freely. Uh, whenever we'd have discussions, she would pipe up and, and just share something. It sometimes was a little bit of a challenge to try to integrate that into the theme of our discussion, but it was precious nonetheless. Uh, despite being rough around the edges, she had this compassionate heart. There was a man there one time, I remember, who was, who was uh, just uh, saying he didn't believe in God and didn't believe in people because God doesn't care for him and people don't care for him. And Lynn looked at him and said, I care for you. I care for you. And you need to accept Jesus as your Savior or you're going to hell. <laughs> it's her form of evangelism. <laughs> Lynn's heart stopped last week. She had a lot of medical issues. And... Um, uh, the paramedics got there and were able to resuscitate her, but um, uh, by that point, her brain had virtually died. There was just very little brain activity. They put her on a respirator. They needed the family's permission or somebody's permission to take her off the respirator and couldn't get in touch with the family. And the hospital's asking, who knows this person? Who, you know, who can you know, help us get a handle on you know, who she is and what her contacts are? I found out about uh, Lynn and I went to the Regents Hospital on a Tuesday evening, the day that uh, she, her heart stopped, came into this, uh, her room around 9.30 at night and um, just prayed for her and talked to her a little bit. The nurse who was there uh, asked some questions about how I knew her and I talked about her small group and our relationship. And the nurse began to weep because she was saying I was so afraid that this lady would die alone. And, and no human should have to die alone, even if they're not conscious, even if it's a matter of being, pull, being pulled off a respirator. Now, then in some respects was more fortunate than some because she had her friend that she'd invited into her apartment and he was there the next day. He uh, didn't have a way to get there right away because he doesn't have a car and doesn't drive and has to arrange transportation. But he was there and we were able to have most of the small group there when we uh, finally got a hold of the family and got permission to take her off the respirator. And so she had some loved ones around her when uh, she finally passed away. We had a funeral, and, and again, Lynn was more fortunate than many people because not only were we there, but there was other family and friends who showed up, and, and we, we had a great send-off. Uh, very much of the flavor of the kind of meetings we used to have where somebody would, uh, we shared words and it was very informal and someone played uh, an organ solo uh, on the spot uh, in honor to her. And it was, it's always very interesting uh, as we're ministering to this crowd. But I thought as I was 
going through this process of visiting her and having her pulled off the respirator and doing this funeral, the, the story of the Velveteen Rabbit came to me. You know, if, if, if Lynn was, was you know, Princess Diana or something, some celebrity, you know, there'd be a big fanfare over her funeral. The, the, the hospital would be surrounded by people and it'd be in the newspapers and, and other places. I mean, they, they, they draw a lot of attention. In our social construct of reality, some people get rated above other people and the ones who are at the bottom are virtually invisible. And they live their life alone and sometimes they die alone. They just don't register on the radar screen of many people. I'm glad Lynn had some friends and family around her, but it got me to thinking, how many don't have that? To be seen, to be noticed, to be touched, to be loved is a fundamental human need. We're, we're, we're created to be loved by God and to be loved by other people. And to the degree that we're not getting either one of those, we are impoverished, we're, we're hungry. We're living, as Mother Teresa said, in the worst form of poverty. Our heart hungers for that. We're created for this. When I was in grad school, we lived in these, norma, these, these uh, dormitories for, for married couples. And we had the great fortune of having our apartment right above the children's playground uh, for the daycare center associated with this uh, apartment. And so I sometimes would be in there trying to study while the kids are out there making a racket. And this one particular day, it was a hot day. That's why the windows had to be open. Couldn't shut those windows. There's no kind of air conditioning in these apartments or anything like that. But there's one child, I, I was trying to study Karl Barth in German, which wasn't easy. And I had a test coming up, so I'm trying to read Karl Barth in German. And outside the window, just beneath the window, is this little kid on the monkey bar saying, Mommy, look at me. Mommy, look at me. Mommy, look at me. Mommy, look at me. And at one point I wanted to run over to the window and say, Lady, will you look at your kid? <laughs> I got a test coming up here, all right? I didn't. but. But see, I think we come into the world saying that. Mommy, look at me. Will somebody look at me? Am I worth looking at? Does someone notice something unique about me? Do I stand out in any way? Do I get anyone's attention? It's a way of asking, what is my worth? Somebody tell me my worth. Somebody tell me my worth. And that, that need can become idolatrous later on in life as we maybe try to get attention for what we achieve and how good we are at this or that or the other thing. It can become idolatrous, but at its core, at its core, I believe it's a legitimate, very, very important core need in our life. Does somebody notice me? Am I important to anybody? You know, there's been a number of studies done that show that kids that are loved and held a lot recover from surgeries and illnesses much faster than kids that are relatively neglected. In fact, there's a number of studies that suggest that it can happen if a child is completely neglected, if they don't have any kind of touch or warmth or warm words or attention. Even if their basic physical needs are met, they can die. Die from lack of attention. It's a core foundational need in our life. Some of you, I'm sure, have, have seen uh, the movie or read the story, uh, Cypher in the Snow. Does that ring about anybody? It's, it's a powerful short story. The movie was made uh, on the base of that story in 1973. But it's a story of, uh, written by Gene Miser in 1964. True story of a young man who uh, in ninth grade got off the school bus as was, the bus was dropping him uh, home, walked out into the snow and looked around for a moment and then dropped dead. 
for no apparent reason, just dropped dead. In school, and looking at kind of uh, some, some form or other that he had filled out, uh, noticed that he had put down on a piece of paper, this man's name was Cliff Evans, but he had put down on a piece of paper that his favorite teacher was Gene Miser. And that kind of shocked Gene Miser because Gene Miser hardly remembered this kid at all. A shy, reclusive kid who always just sat in the back and kind of was invisible. But they asked Gene Miser, since she was the favorite teacher, to um, uh, put together an obituary or something, some, some kind of memorial for, the, for this boy. And as Gene Miser began to look into this boy's life, she discovered that he was entirely invisible. No one knew him. No one noticed him. He managed to kind of swim in that stream of invisibility around all the different social groups. Just swim in that stream of invisibility. Never stood out to anything, never said a word. Even when he came home and he had a broken home and, and the arrangement there was, he was pretty much invisible there. Just no one cared for him. There was no love there. And Gene concluded that this man died from lack of love, lack of attention. It's like, it's like, it's like if, if you feel like you're invisible, you start to become invisible. If you feel like you're unreal, if there's no one there to validate your reality, you feel like you're becoming unreal. And it can even happen that then you just shut down. At some point you stop saying, look at me. Will somebody look at me? Is there anybody out there look at me? And you conclude that you are invisible. And that can be the result. It's, it's painful when that craving for some kind of attention, some kind of a touch of reality, when that doesn't get met. I don't talk about him much because until recently he, he uh, has uh, not been okay with this, but he is now. But I have a son uh, who has got mild autism and some learning disabilities. And so he was never able to really kind of break into the social groups. Just did, you know, there's a lot of navigation that has to go on. To, you got to know how to start conversations, end conversations, sustain conversations, and respond to people appropriately, and he never got that. And um, going to school the first day of, of, of school was always traumatic for him. He had a lot of anxiety about that, was afraid that he'd get lost, and then people would know that he doesn't know where he is and maybe get laughed at. He lived in that fear all of his life. So this one time, I think it was in 10th grade, uh, my daughter, my daughter said, that, Nathan, I tell you what, I'll, I'll go with you to school the first day and I'll show you where the classes are and I'll show you where the locker is and help you uh, get that combination, very complex thing for him, you know, that combination right and know how to open the docker and things of that sort. So she went to school with him, spent the whole day walking with him in the hall, lunchroom and all that. When she came home, when they came home, Nathan was excited, thought it was a great day. And he was retreated to his bedroom as he always has to after any kind of social engagement. He has to have his time alone. So he, he goes to his bedroom. And then my daughter, Alicia, just breaks down crying. Just sobbing. And she goes, it's so sad. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. He's invisible. He walks through the halls and no one looks his way or notices him or smiles at him or says hi to him. He's, he, he, he says, I felt invisible just walking with him. And see, she was always a popular kid. And, you know, first day of school, you're back and people are like, hi, hey, how you doing? You know, touching and, and, and catching up with one another and laughing and whatever. 
everyone's got their pack, right? And you assume that everyone's got their little tribe and they're all sort of clustered around there. But Nathan was the kind of kid who just could swim in that zone of invisibility just around the outside of all these different social groups. And it was invisible. And it just broke my daughter's heart to experience a slice of that. I remember one time my son came home and I could tell he was really happy because he'd get off the bus. Whenever he was a good boy, he'd run home. He'd get off the bus and just run as fast as he could. And so he was running, and I knew he was in a good mood. And he came in, and I said, well, what's the good news? And his response was, somebody sat with me at lunch today. I go, really? What'd you talk about? He says, well, we didn't talk or anything. I, you know, I, but, but, but it was nice to have him there. We didn't know what to say to each other. So he said, Hi. And he, added, he asked the kid if he wanted to you know, finish his piece. <laughs> See, there's this, there, there's, there's, it's not good for people to be alone. It's not good. God said that, right when he first created it. It's not good. It's not good. We're made, for, we're made in the image of the triune God. We're made for relationships. So we've got to ask the question as we're dealing with the issue of poverty, who are the impoverished people around us who are maybe are invisible that God is calling us to see and to touch? To acknowledge their reality, to help them feel real, worthwhile, important. And the thing that's interesting about Jesus is he spent all of his ministry among the invisible. Oh, he went to the, the, the muckety-mucks when he was invited. That didn't happen very much, and usually it was to, to debate him. But his ministry was spent towards the invisible people in the first century. The poor were always invisible, as they mostly are to this day. Uh, the lepers, the lame, the judged folks, the people who are on the outside of society, the ones that everyone tries not to see, he spent his time ministering to them. They were the kings and the queens whose feet uh, he washed. And we're called to follow his example. In fact, Jesus enters into solidarity with them. He confers reality on them by entering into solidarity with, 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 with them. We've uh, seen uh, in Matthew 25, a text we've read a number of times on the judgment day, Jesus says this, For I was hungry. These are the ones he's welcoming into his kingdom. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. That's economic poverty, where you don't have your basic needs met. And we've been talking a lot about that. And we'll come back to that. But then he says, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was the outsider, and you made me an insider. I was swimming in that zone of invisibility. That's where Jesus is, in that zone of invisibility that just skirts all the tribal social groups under the radar screen of everybody. But you noticed me, and you invited me in. You invited me, and I was sick. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. When no one else was there to look after me, you did. When I was in prison, forgotten, unworthy to be remembered, you came and visited me. Jesus is saying, you, you treated me as real. You went out of your tribal cluster of comfort and noticed me and visited me and touched me and clothed me and fed me. You, 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 as always saying, you, you made me real. And since you knew me, I know you. And so come into the kingdom of my father. The question we've got to ask then is, who are the invisible around us that we are called to see and look at and touch and love and, and however God may lead us, minister to them? 
Because in doing that, we're ministering to Jesus. Uh, to begin to answer that question, who are the, the, the invisible, I want to read a poem here. My friend Terry Churchill reads a lot of poetry. I don't. Uh, but she just randomly said, oh, here's a poem I, I just love, and she thought I'd like it, not knowing that I was going to talk on this topic. But I, th- I think it lands very well. It's in this magazine, Art, Faith, Mystery. Uh, oh, it, the title of the magazine is Image. I've never seen it before or heard about it before. But this is the sort of thing she reads. Uh, and this is by a poet named Richard Jones, whom I never heard of. And the poem is called The Jewel. And, he, and, and, and now listen to this. Listen to this. Can you relate to this? And, and, and with poetry, you've got you to gotta listen intensely. So li- listen intensely. Turn up the volume on your ears. I like this moment when there is nothing more I need to do. When I have emptied everything on the counter, eggs, bread, apples, and some chocolate I'll give my children after homework, and I'm free to study the checkout lady's red face, ever so slightly gasping for air, the quick hands of the teenage boy distractedly bagging groceries, and the lady behind me so tiny she stands on tippy toes to empty her cart. I have all the time in the world to open my wallet and count bills for the Salvation Army bell ringer standing outside the automatic glass door in the dark and falling snow. Time even to survey the sad faces on the magazines and read the headlines and confessions and forgive each star by name. But when everything has been counted and bagged, the bill calculated and the receipt handed to me, I've forgotten where I am and what I'm doing. So determined am I to see the angels William Blake tells me stand among us, cherubim lingering by the illuminated bins of produce, seraphim protecting the fish sticks in the frozen food section. The cashier is saying, sir, sir, but now I am seeking to pierce the veil that separates us from the saints in heaven. Gazing out over the rows of shoppers waiting in lines with their carts and now holding up everyone in line behind me, I am squinting to find my father who loved fish sticks, to see him in his appointed place among the multitudes of angels and saints, the heavenly choirs I can almost hear singing to me. That's a sweet poem. Have you ever had an experience something like that? checking out your groceries, and all of a sudden you see. All of a sudden your eyes are opened. All of a sudden you get out of sort of your robotic thought process, your automatic pilot, and you start to see the world afresh, and you see the people around you fresh. And and you look more intensely. You look more closely, and you begin to see the kingdom of God all around you. God, you wake up to the reality that God is present, how we need to stay awake to his presence. God is present. And he's working in and among every person you see around you. There are angels all around us. But so often what we see is not even a person. We see a cashier doing a job and, and a person over there. We have our own judgments and our evaluations and our internal gossip. And all of it simply blinds us to the beauty, the magnificence of all that is around us. Angels all around us. But they remain invisible. Invisible so long as we're wearing the blinders of our judgments and the blinders of our autopilot. And what this poem is calling us to is to, and this is the first step, to noticing the invisible. 
to wake up to the people around us, the people for whom Jesus died. They have unsurpassable worth, every single one of them. No ifs, ands, or buts. And it's our job as kingdom people to acknowledge that and, and, and be aware of that and respond to that. And when we do, I have found when I'm in the mall or at the grocery store or whatever, ordinary moments can become profoundly sacred moments because God is there. And God's people are there and these magnificent creations are there. If we'll simply stay awake and notice it, it's real all around us. So often we live in this realm of unreality, locked into our own thoughts and judgments. How we need to just set that aside. And, 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 and you respond by simply blessing the person, perhaps. One of my favorite things is as I'm waiting in line or checking out the groceries or driving the car or whatever, is just to every person I see, just to look at them and bless them. And see, in that own way, that's sort of agreeing with God that they're real. Okay, they're real. They're real, and they've got unsurpassable worth, and that is real. Lord, bless them, bless that person. Look past whatever your, your judgment mind wants to notice and gossip about. No, look past that and see the unsurpassable worth that Jesus saw when he died for them. And you'll find something in you gets unleashed. Oh, it, it unlocks the floodgates of the kingdom in our life when we can just love unconditionally the people that are around us. I think the Velveteen Rabbit, if, if that story was a fuller story, it wouldn't just be the rabbit that got real, it'd be the boy that becomes real by loving the rabbit. It works both ways. We become more real as we love. We become more real as we are loved. And, and, and it gives your life a sense of substance as you are agreeing with God about every person that you see. And then you communicate their worth to them in appropriate ways. Maybe it's just a smile. You know the difference a smile can make when a person's in despair? I'm convinced smiles have saved lives. Somebody notice me. I read an account a number of years ago of a person who said that they, they, they were going on their way to commit suicide. And what would be the deciding factors if anybody noticed them or smiled at them or said hi to them or anything? And somebody did save their life. A smile just communicates you're worth smiling about. Or maybe you notice the name of the cashier and so you say their name, thank you, so-and-so. That means so much. Little tiny ways the kingdom becomes real. As we confirm the reality of others, our own reality is confirmed. Or maybe it's a pat on the back. Or maybe you notice that that short lady there, that tiny lady that has to tippy-toe to put stuff in her cart. She could use a little bit of help. No one else is noticing her because they're all absorbed in their own self-stuff. But if you're walking with a kingdom mindset, you notice. And so you go over to the help. That's the kingdom in action. And maybe sometimes it even means you befriend somebody and you welcome a stranger in. Somebody who is swimming in the stream of invisibility you invite on the inside of your life. And that blesses you and that blesses them and that is the kingdom in action. At work, there's probably people who are invisible more or less because wherever we go, we have this social construct, this artificial construct that rates some people as worth seeing and others as not worth seeing. Look for the ones who... The construct says aren't worth seeing. The cleaning lady, when you come in, does anyone notice her? Does anyone thank her? Does anyone befriend her and buy her a cup of coffee and, and ask her about her life? Well, be the person who does that. That's what the kingdom is all about. That's what it is to live in this kingdom. On your, in your neighborhood, are there invisible people? Maybe the person who just lost their wife or just divorced or maybe they're just so cantankerous that no one likes to be around them. And so they sort of stay invisible that way. But don't be put off by that. Will you step outside of your country, uh, comfort zone? Let God lead you. And maybe there's ways that you can smile at them or in some way pat them on the back or in some way offer help or in some way maybe befriend them. Be open to God's leading on this. All around us there are angels, cherubim and seraphim. 
Oh, they don't always look like cherubim and seraphim, but neither do we. So we're not going to cast any judgments about that. No, you got to look past the external to see it. But, but, but how our lives are enriched and made real as we notice and affirm the reality of others. And then there are particular groups, particular groups that systematically become invisible in our culture. The elderly, for example. We do a very good job these days of sometimes locking them in a nursing home and forgetting about them. Now, sometimes elderly people need to be in, in care facilities like that. I'm not, I'm not preaching against that at all. I know folks who, for, for, the, for their uh, parents' sake, they need to put them there. But they shouldn't ever be forgotten. How, how, how tragic to spend the last years of your life as a nobody forgotten. I, I once worked at a nursing home when I was in high school. And there's a lady there, her name was Marion. I'll never forget it. And she, was, she had dementia, severe. And, and normally she just kind of, just, you know, talked nonsense. Couldn't care for herself at all. One time I was feeding her, though. And all of a sudden she turns to me and starts crying. And she says, why would they do that to me? And I go, who, who? Why would they do that to me? She's come on saying this. Why, was I that bad of a mother? They just abandoned me here. Why would they do that? And she started crying. I didn't know what she was talking about, but I went afterwards and talked to the uh, head nurse and asked what, what that story was about. And it turns out that she had been a very wealthy lady. Her husband had died. She had all these possessions and whatever. And when she got dementia, the kids got uh, super, supervisory care. And when that happened, they put her in the nursing home, put up a little trust fund to take care of her, took all of her belongings and left. And that was seven years er before and they hadn't come back. And so here she was. And even though she had dementia, there's moments of clarity where she, and at some level, I think, always knew that she'd been abandoned. The pain that Mother Teresa is talking about, the forgotten, the uncared for. There's hundreds of thousands of, of senior citizens who feel abandoned, feel invisible in, 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 in their nursing homes or care facilities. And so it might be the case that God would put it on somebody's heart here this morning to make a ministry out of that, maybe once a month or once a week or whatever, to visit the elderly. I'm so happy that our refuge ministry spends time where they go and they, they uh, now and then play bingo with the senior citizens and kind of just throw a party. It's a way of saying you're real, you're worth celebrating, you're important. Maybe God would put that on someone's heart. Another class of, of folks that can easily become invisible are the orphans. All the more tragic because the Bible says a lot about caring for the orphans. Um, my daughter and son-in-law are in the process of adopting a child. Uh, they have a child of their own, uh, and they might have another child of their own later on, but they just felt like in a world where there are many, many, many thousands of children who don't have homes, maybe it would be good to invite this stranger in and make them part of family. And so they're, they're now in, in the adoption process. In the course of doing this, they uncovered some incredible statistics that are, that are, are worth knowing about. You know, in the United States, there's over 100,000 children waiting to be adopted. In the United States, it's incredible. Now here's, and thank God there are, there are loving foster homes, and that is a ministry. It's a wonderful ministry, better than institutions. They're in homes, but these are kids who really could use uh, some parents and a home to call their own. Here's the statistic that really got me. There are approximately 100 couples waiting to adopt for every healthy white child waiting to be adopt, adopted. By contrast, there's one couple waiting to adopt for every 30 healthy black or mixed-race children waiting to be adopted. When you, when you go in the adoption process, you fill out who you're willing to take in. So there's a 101 ratio for white children. There's a 30 to 1 ratio for, for uh, uh, black and mixed-race kids. 
What's really tragic is that approximately 75% of all babies put up for adoption in the United States today are black or mixed race. So we have this multitude of black or mixed race children waiting for a home. There's homes that are available, but they're not going to invite them in because they're holding out for the white kid. And there's some people who deny that racism is alive and well in America. Uh, and it's fine if you're called to adopt a white child. There's no judgment about that. But we also have to be asking the question, how might God call us to minister to that problem, these folks who can be invisible? And that has lifelong ramifications, obviously. Now, obviously, not everyone's called to adopt a child, black or otherwise, and not everyone's called to minister to the elderly. And, you know, we have to find God's will on this. But it might be the case that there's somebody here and you're thinking about having a child, and maybe you know, the Lord right now, if you're open to it, would put a check in your spirit saying, well, you know, biological children are wonderful, but let's also look at the stranger, the outsider, the person who maybe will go on feeling invisible unless somebody affirms their reality. The statistics on children with physical and mental disabilities is even worse than it is for black children being waited to be adopted. And God just might put that on your heart. And it's a beautiful and precious velveteen rabbit sort of ministry. All around us, in many different ways, there are invisible people. We are called to be the people who see and affirm and touch and love them. So let, let me conclude with this. I know that as I'm saying this, many of us are saying to ourselves, well, I feel invisible Maybe the story of my son in school was your story in school. Maybe your story in life. You feel invisible. You just fall between the cracks of the social groups. And what I want to say is this. I, here's what I would encourage you. If you're one of the folks who feel invisible, at least significantly, so you're, you yourself feel impoverished. On the one hand, I want you to know, as we sang about earlier, God is always watching you. It may be that there aren't human beings in your life that will look at you. Your heart is saying to somebody, look at me. Will somebody know what's me? Will somebody affirm my worth? And that needs to be talked about. But, but first you need to know this, that your father has always delighted in you, as we sang earlier. He, he sings over you. He claps his hands over you, Zephaniah says. And so I would encourage you to spend time just letting him delight in you. Let him make you real because he is your creator. And drink in that worth. Become visible to him. And you might find that that in its own way sort of tends to call out other people uh, noticing you and affirming you. But the second thing I'd say is this. Don't wait till you feel visible to other people to make other people visible to you. You might find that one of the best ways you start to become real as you affirm, is as you affirm the reality of others. And so just start blessing people, start loving people, and watch how that doesn't alter the kind of zone that you're swimming in. Receive the reality from God and then extend it to others and it will come back on you. It always comes back on us. And so with that, I want to ask this question and I close with this. Who are the invisible people around you that God maybe is calling you to reach out and offer that touch of reality? Which is to ask this question. Who are the angels around you that God wants to use to bless you? Because you can't give without it coming back on you. We become real as we confer reality on others. So would you close your eyes just for a second here? And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to maybe call to our attention right now a person or a group of people that maybe has been off your radar screen, but the Lord is saying right now, put them on your radar screen. 
Holy Spirit, reveal to us what we need to see. Help us to receive it, accept it, and live in it. The person at work or on a neighborhood, or maybe the elderly, or maybe a child in needing adopting, maybe a relative, maybe somebody we always see out in the gathering area but have never gone to meet. Holy Spirit, put the person or persons in our mind. Do your work, Holy Spirit. And then seal it. Help us to be committed to stepping out of our comfort zone, out of our comfort zone, and reaching out and touching, smiling, calling people by name, affirming, agreeing with you that every person we come in contact with was worth you dying for. And help us to communicate that to them by how we think about them, speak about them, interact with them, and sacrifice for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'd like to invite the prayer team up, and if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and receive that prayer. Go out, Velveteen Rabbits. Be real. Agree with God about the reality of others. Love you.